Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Although most people acknowledge that Jesus was a first century Jew, interpreters of the Gospels often present him as opposed to Jewish law and customs, especially when considering his numerous encounters with the ritually impure. Matthew Thiessen corrects this popular misconception by placing Jesus within the Judaism of his day. Thiessen demonstrates that the Gospel writers depict Jesus opposing ritual purity itself, not the Jewish ritual purity system or the Jewish law. This fresh interpretation of significant passages from the Gospels shows that throughout his life, Jesus destroys forces of death and impurity while upholding the Jewish law. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Matthew Thiessen. Dr. Thiessen, who earned his PhD at Duke University, is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. He is the author of Contesting Conversion, Genealogy, Circumcision, and Identity in Ancient Judaism and Christianity, as well as Paul and the Gentile Problem. He is also the co-editor of several volumes. Dr. Thiessen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Jonathan. I appreciate it. Yeah. Could, could you maybe begin by telling us a little bit about how you became interested in biblical studies? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, it all began when uh, I went off to university to study science and uh, accidentally signed up for a philosophy course that uh, was the only course that kept my interest throughout the year. And I realized pretty quickly that my, my hopes of uh, entering into the medical world and making uh, significant money was uh, misguided and that I wanted to go and study religion and philosophy. So that's how I originally sort of got into biblical studies and the study of religion. Wow. That is really interesting. So as you then, you know, grew in your knowledge of biblical studies and your journey progressed, um, now you have published this book, Jesus and the Forces of Death. And this book resurrects the Jewishness of Jesus by focusing on one area that's often neglected. It's his interactions with those who are ritually impure. I'm just curious, what led you to see this particular gap in scholarship? Like, yeah. how did you become interested in Jesus's Jewishness? Uh, you know, it's been a, it's been a long uh, interest of mine. Uh, and, uh, you know, just reading biblical scholarship, New Testament scholarship on Jesus, I frequently found myself frustrated with scholars who would stress how Jesus was Jewish and then go on to argue how or show in their minds how Jesus had, you know, radically redefined what Jewishness was. Uh, and I kept finding myself wanting someone to talk more about those aspects of Judaism that most Christians today would find, you know, odd or um, difficult to understand. And so uh, I really uh, worked through a lot of Hebrew Bible scholarship and scholarship on early Judaism, and especially the work of uh, Jewish scholar Jacob Milgram, who's written a massive uh, three-volume commentary on Leviticus 
And it was in, in reading through his articles, his books, that I uh, was struck by the fact that Jesus is depicted in the Gospels as interacting with people who suffer from the th- uh, uh, impurity from the three major sources of ritual impurity, which are um, well, corpses, uh, something called in Greek lepra, which often gets translated wrongly as leprosy, and then finally genital discharges. And I thought, wow, the gospel writers talk about Jesus and people who have ritual impurity. It seems like this is actually a pretty important category for Jesus and for the gospel writers. So that's what led me into this book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So in order to do that, you first claim that for Israel, perhaps the most fundamental way God structured the world was around these two binaries, the holy and profane and the pure and impure. I think this is so helpful for us to get. Um, maybe could you explain a little more about um, what these binaries meant for Israel? Yeah. Um, I think it's really important to stress first and foremost that uh, holiness and purity are not uh, synonymous with each other, and same with impurity and profaneness. Uh, you hear this often, I think, in whether it's um, pastor sermons or even lay thought, and you even hear it in, in New Testament scholarship. Holiness, most simply, is just being set apart, which I think most people get on some level, being set apart for distinct use. So the Sabbath in Israelite thinking is a holy day, it's set apart. The rest of the days of the week aren't holy. They're profane. doesn't mean they're bad, obviously. Monday is not an evil day, although we feel that way at 9 a.m. when we're punching the clock to to go to work. Um, But these days are just regular use days. Uh, Impurity, and this is another sort of confusing category. Obviously, it has to do with, uh, well, conceptions of clean and unclean, but not in terms of hygiene necessarily, not usually. but Um, Well, it sort of has two or three different possibilities. One is ritual, uh, which means something, a ritual impurity is something that excludes you from the realm of holiness. You can't go up to the temple uh, and enter into the temple precincts if you're in a state of ritual impurity. You can't take part from food sacrificed if you're ritually impure. And of course, purity just is the absence. It's just sort of a a natural, neutral state. Um, To be ritually impure is not something sinful. Uh, it's very natural. It happens to people throughout their lives repeatedly. It just means one needs to take uh, precautions and be careful about uh, accessing holy space um, and in holy food. Yes. So that's the world that Jesus is living in. And for chapter two, you set the stage for understanding how the gospels accounts, um, how they present Jesus. So what is important for readers to understand about Jesus's familial upbringing and the start of his mission? Yeah. We don't get a whole lot about Jesus's early days, of course, except for Matthew and for Luke. Um, and it's really in Luke that we hear the most about Jesus's family. It starts with two elderly people, Zachariah and Elizabeth, who it turns out are related to Mary. Uh, and of course, Elizabeth, gives birth to John, John the Baptist, uh, who's then uh, Jesus's relative. How close? We don't know. The, the term for relative there is, is uh, a bit ambiguous. They could be cousins, first cousins. They could be sixth cousins. We don't know. But uh, And then we hear about Mary and Joseph as well. And repeatedly throughout Luke 1 and 2, Luke stresses how pious 
how law observant Jesus' family is. This is the sort of familial context. If when we're writing a biography about Jesus and we wanted to talk about his family upbringing and how relevant that would be for how he developed later on in life, what Luke tells us is uh, from his relatives to his parents, Jesus grew up in a family devoted to the law, devoted to the temple. Zachariah is a priest. Elizabeth is herself a daughter of Aaron. Um, so John the Baptist is of priestly descent. But there was real concern around the temple. And of course, 40 days after Jesus is born, after Mary goes through a time of impurity, after giving birth, according to Leviticus 12, Joseph and Mary and Jesus go up to the temple where he's presented uh, to God. Um, and then they go home. And then the last story is sort of Jesus's youth when he's 12. Uh, Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph took him up for the Passover, which was what they regularly did, and they did it according to the law. Um, and Jesus even says, the 12-year-old precocious Jesus even says to his parents after they lose him that uh, it's appropriate for him to be at his father's house, which signifies that at least at 12, Jesus thought the temple was truly uh, God's residence on earth, a special place for God to reside. And so it was very appropriate for him to be there as well. Yeah, I, I think those um, those different aspects that you highlight are so key for us to understand uh, Jesus's world and especially yeah, his Jewishness. So then you turn to the first ritually impure person that Jesus encounters in Mark's gospel. And uh, this man has what Mark calls lepra. This is a very enlightening chapter. For our readers, how should we understand this condition and Jesus's treatment of it? Yeah. So uh, I've already mentioned this very briefly. I'll, I'll say a bit more here. Uh, the Greek word lepra in any English Bible translation and in other languages gets rendered uh, to refer to leprosy, what, what uh, medical professionals call Hansen's disease. And if uh, you were like me, you may remember uh, from your youth, uh, flannel board diagrams of Jesus and uh, Jesus healing of lepers and hearing stories of how horrific this disease was. Um, they were all very lovely stories. Unfortunately, they were a little inaccurate. Uh, the condition lepra is not leprosy. It's not Hansen's disease. Um, the description of Leviticus 13 and 14, where we hear about this ritual impurity, matches in no way with leprosy. It doesn't look like leprosy. Um, in fact, leprosy wasn't known in the Mediterranean world until probably around 200 BCE, so well after Leviticus was uh, written. What we think it means, I mean, there are real questions, frankly, around it. We hear about it repeatedly in uh, Greco-Roman medical writers, and it always seems to be associated with, with things uh, or comparable to, I don't think it's necessarily equated with, but comparable to things like scurvy eczema, um, some sort of relatively, what would be in our minds, a relatively minor skin condition that's not necessarily life-threatening, not debilitating, uh, not necessarily painful, uh, just something that made the skin scaly and uh, white. So it often gets compared to snow, snowflakes, um, and it sort of makes a person this is one, one argument Jacob Milgram makes, makes a person look uh, sort of corpse-like. Their skin is peeling in white like a corpse. And so this is uh, why I think 
people ought to translate it as anything but leprosy. It should be scale disease or a skin condition or just lepra or something. Um, that's what lepra is. That's what this condition is, which of course raises the real question, why does Jesus care so much about someone who has a minor skin condition? Aren't there larger issues out there? Uh, it's head and shoulders good enough for this person. Why does Jesus need to step in here? Why does he care so much? And what's fascinating about the way Mark tells the story is this man with lepra comes to Jesus and says, if you want to, if you desire to, if you're willing to, you can purify me. He has no doubt that Jesus has the power to do it. In other words, what he doubts, what he wonders, the question he raises with Jesus is, do you actually want to? Do you care about my lepra? Do you care about this ritual impurity that I have? Um, and Jesus's answer is, I do care. Be pure. Uh, so the language of purity is really important there. It's not uh, just a healing. It's also very clearly about ritual purity. So Jesus removes the lepra, which is making this man, as long as he has this condition, makes him impure and unable to access God's temple, uh, unable to participate in certain aspects of society. Uh, Jesus desires this purity to be gone. He doesn't tell the man, look, it's just a minor skin condition. Don't worry about ritual impurity. It's nothing. He thinks it's relevant. It's important. It needs to be dealt with. And in fact, at the end of the story, uh, Jesus says to the man, now go show yourself to the priest, which is what Leviticus 13 and 14 require, uh, and do make the offerings that Moses commands uh, once you're cleansed of your lepra. So he actually commands the man to go follow the laws of Leviticus 13 and 14. Go to the priest, go to the temple, offer sacrifices, just like Moses commanded. So Mark 1 starts with um, Jesus. We don't, have, we don't have baby Jesus in Mark 1. We get full-grown Jesus who's baptized by John, sent out of the wilderness, comes back, casts out a demon, and the very next thing is ritual impurity. And there he is. Uh, I don't know how he could state it more clearly. Caring about the Jewish law, caring about ritual impurity, caring about the sacrifices required after one becomes pure from a, a, a skin condition. Right. So Jesus is not um, just doing away with that system. He is showing himself to be, you know, following what Leviticus um, prescribed. And so then next you focus on the story of the woman with a 12 year flow of blood. Who approaches Jesus in faith. What, what in your mind is important to know about Jesus and ritual impurity from this account? Right. So this is the, the um, next category of ritual impurity or, or the next source of ritual impurity, general discharges of blood or semen. In this case, uh, so the, the later rabbinic term for this woman is she's a zava. She's a, a discharger and a regular discharger. This isn't menstruation. Because uh, this isn't normal. This is something that's abnormal and uh, a, a medical condition, which of course menstruation isn't. Uh, in this case, this woman has had it for 12 years. She's been ritually impure for 12 years. She can't go up to the temple. Uh, she can't have sex. She probably can't bear children in this condition. There are real uh, sort of, you know, consequences to her to her condition and. What's fascinating about, again, this is the way Mark tells the story. Matthew changes it a little bit, and Luke is a little closer to Mark here. The fascinating thing about this story 
uh, is that the woman sneaks up behind Jesus in a crowd and grabs on to the, uh, well, grabs onto his garment. In uh, Matthew, if I'm remembering correctly, it's actually, she, she grabs on to his tzitzit, his uh, tassels, which again are a sign of law observance and of, of piety. Um, but either, either way, she grabs onto his garment, doesn't even touch his skin. And in Mark, she's immediately healed. In other words, Jesus doesn't even make the decision to heal her in Mark. His body is this purifying source of power that naturally discharges uh, a cleansing power into the woman. So whereas you would expect in normal human encounters, uh, given Jewish ritual impurity thinking, you would expect the woman who is uh, ritually impure to convey her impurity to another person via contact. In this case, what happens isn't that her impurity enters into Jesus. It's that his power, and I would argue it's his holiness, uh, shoots out of him like uh, you know, a shock or electricity. It just naturally flows out of his body upon contact and into the woman removing the source, removing the condition that creates our, the impurity that she's had for 12 years. So it's sort of um, a depiction of Jesus as a, as a force of nature, a holy force of nature, who even apart from his own decision-making, his body is cleansing. Um, it's really sort of a powerful image of Jesus in, in many ways that, that Mark has. And, and again, I said Luke follows him this way. Um, yeah. Yeah, that is such a powerful image. Um, yeah, what a what a great picture, and um, yeah, such an amazing point to bring out. So then you turn to the subject of death. That Jesus's ministry includes raising the dead. So how does Jesus's response to death inform our view of Jesus's power and ritual purity? Yeah. So. We get a number of, of corpses that Jesus bumps into in his, in his uh, ministry. Um, and it's pretty interesting. You get this. So I, I haven't talked about the gospel of John at all to this point, uh, because John doesn't have people who have lepra and John doesn't have uh, any depiction of someone who's, who's had a general discharge and is ritually impure. But of course he does have uh, a corpse and we get to that. Um, we get in Mark, it's with, a, it's with a young girl, and it's a story that actually uh, is wrapped around the story of the woman with the hemorrhage. It's uh, New Testament scholars call this a Mark and sandwich. Uh, it starts with a um, father whose daughter is about to die, goes to the woman with the genital hemorrhage, and then comes back to the girl and her father. Uh, and so... Mark is connecting these two stories, two different stories about women with ritual impurities, connecting them together, I think, to, to convey very powerfully Jesus's mission of purification. Uh, in Mark, Jesus goes into the, this house after hearing that this 12-year-old this girl has died. Uh, according to Numbers 19, as soon as you enter into an enclosed space where there is a corpse, it is expected that you have now become ritually impure. You don't even have to touch the corpse. That's how powerful a source of impurity the corpse is. Uh, so contact doesn't make anybody 
more impure. Just being in the in the same enclosed space is already enough to make you impure. And it's an impurity for seven days, which is the longest uh, sort of secondary impurity you can have. So the corpse is like the most powerful source of impurity out there. Jesus comes in. Well, she's just died. Uh, and he takes her hand and lifts her up and raises her from the dead. Uh, in Matthew, the story's a little bit different. She's been dead maybe a little bit longer, the way Matthew narrates the story. And Luke tells the same story, but he adds another one, this one of a young man uh, whose mother is a widow, who's dead. And here, he hasn't just died. He's been dead, and they're taking him to bury him. So uh, this person is, you know, not just at the, not just past the door in terms of being dead. He's been dead for, you know, 12, 16 hours. In John, of course, you have the story of Lazarus, who's been dead so long that his, his corpse is quite smelly. The deterioration process has really set in. And so what you get is this sort of building uh, chronologically, if you think of the Gospels, which one's first, Mark, and then which one's latest, probably John, you get this sort of building up of Jesus being able to reach into the realm of death and pluck someone out of the realm of the dead and bring them back to life, even someone who's been dead for four days. Um, so there's this powerful depiction of Jesus being able to face death itself in other people and and bring them back from the dead. So again, it's this purification mission, but a movement uh, from life to death. And I, I should have said this earlier. I should, I'll say it now quickly. Uh, these four categories, holy, profane, pure, and impure, uh, Jacob Milgram and others have argued that what makes sense of ritual impurity, that these three sources of ritual impurity is the idea that they're all associated with the realm of death itself. And then holiness, so impurity is a force, and it's a force of death. That's the title of, of the book. Uh, holiness, on the other hand, is a source of life. And so the fact that the gospel writers depict Jesus as the Holy One of God, uh, this is a force, a powerful force of life unleashed on earth, the realm of death. And when anybody who is dead or under the power of death bumps into Jesus, they are moved from life to death. Yes. Yeah, that is amazing. And then last, you, you turn to um, demonic forces. Well, not last, but uh, second to last. What do readers need to know about Jesus's encounters with demons? How does this kind of relate to ritual impurity yeah. and Jesus's mission? Right. Um, you know, <laughs> so I talked about impurity. I talked about ritual impurity. I should, I should, and I clarified that ritual impurity is not sinful. It's not bad. It's something very natural happens frequently. It can become sinful. If you are ritually impure and you run up to the temple and take part in food, food sacrifice there, that has now become a sin. Uh, and the language that gets used there is also impurity language. It's uh, moral impurity. Moral impurity equals sin. And of course, Jesus throughout the Gospels is concerned about sin. He's concerned about moral impurity. And in one you know, famous incident, forgives a man's sins, much to the chagrin of, of those around him. Who was Jesus to, to forgive sins? Who was Jesus to wipe out moral impurities? Where does he get such, such a power from? Uh, so there's moral impurity and there's ritual impurity which you don't hear about much in the Old Testament or the or Hebrew Bible, are uh, demons. You hear a bit about it, uh, and the language is different. What you get when you get to Mark and, and the Gospels, you hear frequently about demons, and they're referred to as impure spirits. 
unclean or impure spirits. And it's language that you see in other Jewish texts from around the time period. Uh, there's this idea that uh, the demonic, these um, superhuman forces, they're lower than Israel's God, but they're stronger than humans. These forces are out there. And, uh, well, in almost all Jewish thinking, these are perceived as very, very bad things. Um, why impure? Why do they call them impure? I think there are a number of potential answers to that question. Uh, one is uh, different people thought demons arose from different places, but often from the dead. So whether it's the dead giants, uh, the offspring of angels and humans from Genesis 6, who arose and became demons, so they, are, they arise from the dead, so they arise from an impure source, or they're, they arise from uh, just evil people who have died. Um, so again, they've arisen from out of corpses. Um, but I think even more interesting and probably more probable, or uh, at least uh, more helpful, is that the mission, the uh, sort of job that these demons have for themselves, their vocation, is a vocation of impurity. They are uh, hell-bent on two different things. One, they're out there trying to make living human beings sin. Uh, they're trying to mislead and uh, cause them to stray and stumble and fall morally. So they're trying to create moral impurity in humans out of jealousy or whatever other reasons they might have. The second thing they try to do is they are trying to hurt and kill people. And you hear this repeatedly. There's a, there's a great text called the Testament of Solomon, um, which uh, well, scholars debate whether it's Jewish or Christian originally. It doesn't really matter. You get this long uh, treatise about all the various demons under the chief demon's uh, power. And he tells Solomon what their jobs are, what their names are, and what their jobs are. Well, pretty much... Their jobs are to kill people. And they have, you know, very interesting ways in which this demon tries to kill people and this tr tries to kill people in a different way. And so this idea that they're trying to create corpses, they're hell-bent on killing and death, which of course, death is ritual impurity. Corpses are ritually impure. So I think this is why the gospel writers use this language of impure spirits. Um, that's their whole mission is to create impurity. And Jesus, yeah. is, Jesus is depicted as uh, one who's received the Holy Spirit. He's the Holy One of God. And so it's this, this contest uh, that you see throughout Jesus' life, at least in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, between the Holy Spirit and the Holy One of God and impure spirits. And who's going to win this battle? Um, you see in Mark 5, very, very powerful depiction of Jesus and uh, the man possessed by legion, a legion of demons. And the end result is the man who has been naked and hurting himself and uh, living in the cemetery amongst corpses at the end is clothed in his right mind, not living in the cemetery and no longer hurting himself because the, the demons, as many as they were, couldn't beat the Holy One of God. They've ended up in a bunch of pigs and drowned in a sea. Yeah. And that's just such a helpful way to frame Jesus's encounter, uh, his encounters with the demonic forces. Um, so then last, you handle the topic of the Sabbath. Um, this is a big part of Jesus's um, 
his ministry and the debates that he had. What can we learn about the gospel authors and how they portray Jesus's actions on the Sabbath? Right. Uh, anybody who heard you say uh, that my book is trying to talk of a show how Jesus cares about the Jewish law and is keeping it would probably very quickly say, well, what about what about the Sabbath? Uh, this is the majority of the controversy stories around Jesus and the law are about this. What is Jesus doing on the Sabbath? He's doing work on the Sabbath. And the first incident, uh, incident in Mark's gospel around the Sabbath, well, actually, there's the first one is Jesus cast out a demon on the Sabbath in Mark 1. And nobody complains about, hey, what are you doing? It's the Sabbath. Uh, it's not mentioned. But in Mark 2, we get uh, a question that arises because Jesus' disciples are plucking grain on the Sabbath. It's not even Jesus in, in Mark, but it is his disciples and they're his responsibility. So that does reflect on him. And uh, some Pharisees ask, ask Jesus why they're doing this. And I think they're truly asking why. We want your legal explanation for what is happening here. Do you have a legal defense for this? Have you thought this through or is this just you're just wantonly disregarding the Sabbath? And Jesus's answer uh, in this story, Matthew is actually provides a, a much fuller legal or uh, halakhic argument than Mark. I think he's trying to strengthen what Mark has or maybe fill in some of the blanks that maybe Mark assumes his readers are going to have is ultimately that. Uh, well, two things, and it's, it's a common Jewish view that the Sabbath is not more important than human life. Uh, human life is of greater value than the Sabbath because the Sabbath was given to humans. This is the Jewish argument, a, rabbin, a later rabbinic argument, that God gave the Sabbath to humans, not humans to the Sabbath. Therefore, it's meant for life to flourish. And if you're keeping the Sabbath in a way that life doesn't flourish, you're keeping it wrong. And so Jesus' argument takes that as an assumption and says that uh, the Sabbath is for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath. This is why they're eating or why they're plucking grain on the Sabbath. Uh, and then he cites another text of David eating uh, bread that he wasn't supposed to eat out of the tabernacle. And scholars have argued about how does that help answer the question of the Sabbath? I think it helps. And Matthew makes this, I think, more explicit. It helps because the argument, the implicit argument is David did something with regard to the temple because he and his men were hungry. The temple is important. But again, human life is more important. And if uh, you needed the bread of the presence to live, then you break the law that keeps you from eating that bread. And so Jesus's argument is human life is more valuable than the temple. That's why David did it. But the temple is more valuable than the Sabbath. And Matthew makes this explicit. Priests work on the in the temple on the Sabbath. Why? Because the temple's actually more important than Sabbath. Uh, and if David's need trumped temple, how much more do Jesus's needs and the needs of his disciples trump Sabbath? Um, so it's a it's a a legal argument that I think we're generally uh, oblivious to when we read these stories. But Jesus is making the claim that the Sabbath is for human life. And then the rest of the Sabbath controversies that happen, they're all about Jesus doing miracles, healing people on the Sabbath, moving them from illness to health, from death to life, showing 
the Sabbath is all about life. It's holiness. It's a holy day. What better day to move people into the realm of life than on the Sabbath? So there's a, a, a larger argument that I think the Gospels are trying to say, yeah, Jesus did these things on the Sabbath, but he did them believing, and people could argue and debate about that, but he did them believing that it was the best day to do it because of the holiness of the Sabbath. He wasn't breaking the law wantonly because it didn't matter. He wasn't breaking the Sabbath because he thought the Sabbath was outdated or silly or stupid. He thought this was perfectly good Sabbath behavior. What better day to do it than on a day of joy, a day of gladness, as the Sabbath gets called, uh, bringing joy and life to people who are suffering uh, under illness and in the powers of death. Yes, that that is so helpful. And just like the rest of the book, I do um, just want to commend it to our readers. I think that this is, um, yeah, an incredibly insightful work for those who are interested in uh, biblical studies, especially in um, Jesus and his ministry. So please go get it, go read it, go interact with it. Um, but before we let you go, Dr. Thiessen, would you um, maybe just tell our audience what projects you're working on next? Yeah, uh, a couple of smaller things, but I'm uh, my my next book project is uh, a book on what has often been called the radical new perspective on Paul, or more recently the Paul within Judaism school. I'm trying to trying to take uh, some of those arguments that I've written on it more academically in Paul the Gentile problem. Trying to distill some of that for a, a broader audience. Um, you know, there are numerous books out there on Paul from sort of the Lutheran camp, more popularly written for, for a broader audience like Stephen Westerholm and others. Same with the, the quote unquote new perspective on Paul, you know, Tom Wright and others have written more popular books, uh, especially for, for Christian audiences. And I, I sort of feel like there's a, a gap in uh, the literature there for, uh, you know, non scholars who are interested in these questions, uh, but maybe don't want to, you know, lay out a lot of money or spend, you know, a lot of time working through really dense material. They want sort of a, a broad overview of uh, this take on Paul. So that's, that's the next project I'm, I'm picking away at as I have time. Great. Well, that sounds, yeah, very helpful. So thank you so much for joining us. And for those who are listening, this is New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host, and until next time, take up and read. Okay.